Before I walk up there behind the sacred desk and, and preach, I'd like for you to notice, if you'll turn in your New Testaments to the end of John chapter 7, there's a little note. There's a little note that says uh, John chapter 7, 53, verses 8, 11, do not appear in some of the earliest manuscripts. You know, we are those people that believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and uh, we believe in the trustworthiness of Scripture. And so I think when you read something like that, you say, what is that about? And uh, I think it, it's very simple what it's about. Uh, this definitely appears in different places in early manuscripts. Some, this story we're about to look at, some, some, in some of the early manuscripts, it appears at the end of the Gospel of John. In others, it appears somewhere in Luke, or, uh, around Luke 6, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and then there are other earlier manuscripts where it does not appear. That does not mean it is not from the apostles. That does not mean it's been, not been a part of the apostolic tradition. That's why it was included in those manuscripts. Uh, every reputable scholar that I could uh, read about this stated very plainly, yes, this this. Everybody believes this actually happened and it's in keeping with the teachings of the Gospels and certainly the way Jesus treats outcasts. And so uh, as I just felt like I needed to explain that to you. And, uh, and so let's uh, turn to Luke chapter 8, verses 2 through 11, as I read this passage. Let's pray before we do. Lord, I want to pray uh, just briefly about those, those boys in Thailand, that soccer team trapped in the cave. Uh, thank you that last, at last count, at least I heard, six of them were out. And God, we would pray. Uh, we know there's a world of time difference, but not only that they would be safe, but that they could be well cared for and reunited with their parents and, Father, that you would bring blessing out of struggle in some way uh, in that situation. Lord, we acknowledge that um, we, too, must be brought to safety, that there is no chance for us before a holy God except in your sovereign mercy. And thank you, Jesus, that you actually came to earth to rescue us. And we pray as we look at this story of your holiness and your mercy, that you would open our hearts to our need and your provision. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11, early in the morning, early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her right in the midst of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone to death such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger, on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, demand from him an answer, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. 
And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard this, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. Now, I teach a Friday morning men's Bible study down at Baker Donaldson Law Firm down in Jackson. It's a great group of guys. And uh, 6.30 a.m., and we love to get our coffee and sit around the table, you know, we're, we're chatting a little bit, and we're, we're opening up our Bibles, and we've got our coffee, it's the top of the morning, you know, it's a great experience, and um, that's kind of what was going on in the temple that morning, it says that it's very early that Jesus had gone into the temple, and he sat down, and he began to teach, if we put it in a modern context, everybody would have their coffee, you know, everybody would be listening to Jesus. Can you, can you imagine being in a, in a large, like, big Bible study, but it being in a Bible study with Jesus as he opened the Old Testament and explained the grace of God? It would just be incredible. And the text says that right there early in the morning, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, members of the, the Sanhedrin, we assume, the ruling council of Israel, suddenly they are just moving through the crowds, pushing people out of the way. They're on a mission and they come just barging into Jesus' Bible study and they have this woman that they're just kind of dragging behind and when they get there they just kind of fling her down on the ground in front of Jesus. You can just imagine what's going on with everybody listening to Jesus teach at this moment. And I'm sure that she looked a mess. I'm sure that she was so scared. And I'm sure that she looked like she had just been been crying. So all eyes are are on this this poor woman who's been thrust into the midst, is the, the Greek is thrust into the midst of them. When the Pharisees asked Jesus a question about her to try to trap them so they can be done with him as a trusted teacher in Israel. They can be done with him and call him a heretic. Verse 4, teacher, they said, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now, in the law, as you probably know... You bumpkin from Galilee. Maybe you don't know. Moses commands us to stone such a woman. So, uh, good morning, Jesus. Well, thank you for allowing us to come to your Bible study. You want to kill her or not? What do you say? Well, as you probably know, this kind of adultery takes two people text indicates by the way it describes this lady that she was probably married. But this kind of adultery takes two people, and the law of Moses in Leviticus 20 and in Deuteronomy 22 states that when two people are caught in adultery, they are both to be brought before the authorities. They are both to have a fair trial where evidence 
and testimony is put forth, including cross-examination, like a truly fair trial, and um, if found guilty, both could be stoned to death as punishment for adultery. But here, did you notice only the woman is brought? Something's not right here. And there's no trial. Jesus just live or die, Jesus. One scholar says, when you read the law of Moses, you see all these terrible penalties. Do you ever read the Old Testament and go back and say, I'm just kind of embarrassed by this. You know, it's just, it's just so brutal, you know. Uh, our, our, our agnostic and atheist friends that, are, are, that want to discredit uh, our faith, they, they certainly go to this section of Scripture to say, see how barbaric all this is? Quote, when you read the law of Moses, you see all these terrible penalties stoning for this and that, and people say, how awful. However, this is actually a much more merciful law than our own current jurisprudence because of this reason. The laws of evidence in the law of Moses were much, much stricter. In order to convict somebody of adultery, it was not enough to say we saw them coming out of a bedroom. Not enough. It was not enough to say we saw them lying in the same bed. Not enough. No. Two witnesses had to see them in the act of adultery. Because the law of evidence, I continue to read, was so strict... Almost nobody was ever convicted of adultery. Almost no one was ever stoned. In the laws of the jurisprudence today, in in the United States, as long as you convince a jury that it's probable, you can get a guilty verdict. Not at that time. It had to be witnessed by two people. It had to be absolutely certain. And this was for the protection of people because the penalty was so great so that they would not be put to death and not have done something. So if she was, quote, caught in the act, where was the other person she was caught with? You understand what's going on here? Where's the man? The man's not there. Because more than likely, he was a part of the scheme to entrap this woman and was assured that he would not be brought before any authorities and was assured he would not be stoned. They just needed to get something on Jesus. Same scholar says the fact that these people came with this woman and said, we saw her in the act, but the man is not there, virtually proves there was entrapment. So... They are breaking the law of Moses by not bringing him along too uh, in two different places, flagrantly breaking the law of Moses. They are breaking the law of Moses by not providing a trial for this poor woman and any opportunity for her to cross-examine and try to, to, to prove her innocence or admit her guilt. And um, just to trap Jesus in his words, and all the while they are challenging Jesus about how serious he is about the law of God. Don't you find that interesting? 
Don't you find it interesting that these self-righteous people break the law of God in any way they want to get what they want while trying to trap Jesus as one that doesn't obey, doesn't support the law of God. And, and you know, Jesus, he bends down and he starts writing in the dirt. Wouldn't we want to know what he was writing in the dirt? We don't. <laughs> I mean, I've read a, a lot of theories this week and I've heard a lot in my life. The one I like the best, we don't know. The one I like the best is he was writing the sins of the people accusing the woman in the dirt as the Son of God. But we don't. It's kind of nice, though, that um, the fact that he was writing in the dirt was mentioned, even though we don't know what it was, just because that's what eyewitness testimonies of events, that's what Scripture does. It actually gives the whole story, and you can rely on it. Um, so he starts writing in the dirt, and, um, and they're pressing him. We read, they keep asking him, well, what's your answer? And he's just writing in the dirt. Well, they're getting very impatient with him. So, they got him. Because if he says, no, don't kill her, then he saves the woman but undermines the law of Moses and is immediately discredited once and for all before the people. But if he says, yes, then the friend of tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes is responsible for killing somebody who acted like a prostitute. That's a great savior, the one that gets you killed. So it's a big time trap set to take Jesus out. It was the perfect trap, unless that is you're trying to trap the second person of God. And you know what? As we say, good luck with that. Good luck with that. The law said that with a guilty verdict, the, uh, the couple could be stoned to death. The law said with a guilty verdict, the witnesses had to be the first people to throw the stones. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? But Jesus sees that she's simply a pawn in their game, and Jesus considers their manipulation, their breaking of the law, their framing of her and humiliating her, their murderous hearts toward her and toward him. He considers those also great sins. The kind of sins that might prove that they shouldn't be spiritual leaders among the people were he to begin to bring them out. And so he says, He who is without sin, let him throw the first stone. Where is the man caught in adultery with her? Where are the witnesses? Where are the accusers in this miscarriage of justice? Are they without sin that's just as bad as hers? No. They're triple violators, as I mentioned a moment ago. And should one person hurl a stone, he will bring all of it out in the open. Bibles open and discredit them as the leaders and teachers of Israel. And so the older ones immediately realize, we're done. You know, the older ones, they're wiser. It says the older ones left first and the young, the young guns that, you know, are going to 
change the world and you're going to stick the, stick the landing on the law every time. They don't want to give up. They go, when they see the older ones leave, they, they go, well, I might want to leave too. So everybody leaves. Tim Keller says, when Jesus turns to them and says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, he is not saying what a lot of people have thought and what many movie makers, you know, like Jesus movies, movie makers have thought that only a sinless person could ever judge another person. Only a sinless person could ever punish someone. That is ridiculous. I remember when I was in college, my first two years, I did not know Christ and I was the, the leader of the resistance against Christ. And then I was converted. And then I was a part of the, quote, God squad in my fraternity. And uh, I remember this, this guy named Chris. He was from Slidell, Louisiana. And uh, he's one of these Baptist boys. He's raised in the church. Man, he was ready to raise some sand when he got to college. And so, yeah, he and I were, bud- we were running buddies for the first two years. Then I was... Brought to Christ, by Christ, in a really wonderful way. And uh, I wouldn't even be like pointing out his, him. I wouldn't even be saying anything. He was like so sensitive. You know, it was kind of crazy. And uh, I'll never forget, like I'd get around him and we'd just let, like, start talking. And I was just kind of flowing out of my newfound faith. And he would say, and he, he, would, he knew it so well, he would almost say it. He'd say it so fast it almost sounded like three words or something. He'd say, judge not lest you be judged. That was, in case you didn't hear that, Jesus' words, judge not lest you be judged. Like, like evidently, it doesn't matter what you do. Like, nothing can be pointed out by anybody who has a sin. No, that's not right. The law of God is perfect. The law of God can be pointed out. The gospel can be pointed out. So Jesus isn't saying that Jesus... uh, uh, Jesus wasn't saying... You better be 100% perfect or you can't cast that stone. That is not what he's saying. Instead, I go back to the quote, he, what he is saying is, I know you. And the very law of Moses you invoke, you are breaking. Your hypocrisy is the stench in the nostrils of God. I do not deny, I do not deny the law of Moses, but by the law of Moses, I deny that you are qualified to be witnesses at all, and you are quali- disqualified, disqualified to be executioners. And so all the accusers are gone. And that is where she's still in the midst of the crowd. You, you can imagine how silent they are at this point. Still right there in front of Jesus, Jesus stands up and he looks her in the eyes with incredible compassion. We just know this. And he asks her this question in verse 10. Woman, where are they? Where are they? Has no one, is there no one left to condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. It's kind of cool. Instead of passing judgment on the woman, Jesus passes judgment on the judges in this passage. And Jesus is saying, they left and they do not condemn you to death for your adultery. Neither do I. I don't condemn you to death for your adultery either. 
Jesus is not saying she didn't commit adultery. She did. She was, as they say, caught in the act. And yet Jesus is here calling her to something wonderful, like forgiveness, and that go and leave your life of sin, like forgiveness and a new start, kind of freshness of her life. You know, in a, in a secular way of thinking, a modern secular way of thinking, there's really not much ancient secularism, um, most guilt is invalidated. Most guilt is not considered valid. And, and we know the reason why, right? Because if there are no standards, if there are no rules, if there's no laws of right and wrong, then why would you feel guilty? I mean, what's right to me might not be right to you. You know what I'm talking about? My truth is your, and your truth. You can have your truth. I can have my truth. And I didn't violate, I violated your truth, but I didn't violate my truth. And so, you know, why, why would there be any guilt in a situation like that? But we have it, don't we? Because the law of God is actually written on our hearts. And we know that adultery is wrong. And we don't even have to be told that. We know that murder is wrong. You know, I heard a, an atheist say, and I'm not, I'm not saying this derisively, by the way. I'm just reporting what, they, what he said. He, he said, you don't have to have a God to know murder is wrong. You just have to have, believe in humanity. I'm like, right! Humanity that believes anything and humanity that differs in what it believes Actually, we do have guilt before God because there is a standard of holiness in heaven and people will try and talk you out of your real guilt. Don't let anybody talk you out of your real guilt. You know, there's this thing called false guilt where you didn't do anything and people are trying to make you feel guilty. Don't listen to that. Do not accept false guilt. But on the other hand, don't let anyone talk you out of your real guilt because you're just going to cover it over with platitudes and positivism and it's just going to be under there festering because it's real. You know the great thing about Jesus? is Jesus doesn't psychologize our guilt. Jesus takes it away. Forgives it. And it's gone. It's not under there anymore. Now, we don't know exactly how this woman responded in her heart to Jesus. I like what uh, Merrill Tenney says. He says, meeting a man who was interested in saving rather than exploiting and interested in forgiving rather than condemning must have been a new experience for her. So we would imagine after he literally saved her life, after he looked upon her with compassion in front of all these men, um, we would think that she probably would be very attracted to what he would have to say and, and to who, who he was. I know in our little evangelical hearts we want to say she, put, she received Jesus right there and then. Okay? It doesn't say that. I promise you in this church, we're not going to add anything that's not said. 
But she very well could have, right? She very well, she could have. In fact, I'll tell you what, just to relieve the, uh, the tension in your mind right now, we're just going to say she probably did, okay? Does that make you feel better? <laughs> okay. But we don't know. Here's what we know. Is that Jesus defeated the legalism of the religious leaders and offered grace without compromising God's holiness. Let me say that again. Jesus defeated the religious legalism of those leaders while offering grace that did not compromise God's holiness. That's what we know. Um, We know that Jesus championed the law in this passage and mercy simultaneously. We know that Jesus is like his Father, holy and compassionate. Law and amazing grace and mercy. That's what we know. That's what we see in operation in this passage. But really, when it comes to her, we can only conjecture about her. But I'll tell you what else we know this morning. As we kind of make the turn toward this table. We know about us. Because we don't have to guess. We should never assume we know what is in the heart of another person. We don't. But we know, what we know about is us. You and I, all of us, everybody, you people in the balcony, you too, are all each caught in the act before God. We just are. In the act of rebellion. Before God. Oh, oh, sex. Sex is a little little part, just one little piece, or maybe a big piece, I don't know, but it's only one piece of this rebellion. We know that an all-seeing, an all-knowing God has caught us in the act. Every act of rebellion and the attitude of our hearts Toward his rule and his holiness, we are guilty before an all-knowing, all-seeing, holy God. Have a nice day. But we know this. See, this is a church. We get to proclaim the gospel here without apology. We know that if we, if I can use a play on words, know Jesus, if we know God's Son, we know that He doesn't condemn us either. More than the woman in that text knew so much more about Jesus, so much more really about the whole thing, we know so much more. We've read the rest of the story. We know who Jesus is. And um, it is because Jesus took our condemnation on our behalf. Neither do I condemn you. Look, you're a sinner before God. These are great words. Neither do I condemn you. I've taken your condemnation. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed 
for our iniquity, the punishment that brought us peace with God was upon Him. And by His wounds, His stripes, we are healed. So we know we're sinners. And if you know Christ, you've put your trust in what He has done on your behalf, on the cross, and in the empty tomb. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. Can I just say that again? Hey, you, sinner. Yeah, you and me. Is this not cool water to your soul? There is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment in the sense of the wrath of God, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So in Jesus there is forgiveness. It is not psychologized. It's real. Because our sin is real. And Jesus really at the right time was born in Bethlehem. And Jesus really lived under the law. And Jesus really was nailed to a cross in my place And in your place, and Jesus really was punished as He took all of our sins upon Himself. And He was punished on our behalf. And He really did die on a cross. And He really did rise from the dead in a new body. And He really did ascend. And He really is seated at the right hand. And He really can forgive your real sins and give life to all who come to Him. And we as believers need to remember this because it's not just those people that are yet to know Jesus who are rebels. We're rebels. We're caught in the act still. Our consciences are troubled. The Holy Spirit is at work in our lives and we as believers, we can can confess our sins and He is faithful and just. And will forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness because of this grace, this forgiveness that He has purchased. He will freshly apply that forgiveness and that grace to your life even today. We are actually given not just forgiveness, but don't you love how Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Now now go and live a different way. We're actually given the ability to live the freedom of the sons of God. And by that, I mean to live as people who know they are loved, even though they're sinners. Know they can come to their Father. To live as people who will wrestle in our hearts before the face of a God who loves us, a friendly deity who owns us as His child every single time and learn to seek Him through struggle in a fallen world and faith. This is the freedom we have to grow into Him as we wrestle, to grow into Him as we grow, to grow into Him as we rest and worship, and to be able to give love in His name.
This morning, God is not just calling us to forgiveness as we go to this table. That's all about forgiveness, right? This is my body. Like, it's real. The symbol that the body, His body was real. This is my blood. But you know what? We're called to communion. We're called to forgiveness. This morning, I want to focus on go and sin no more. As well as neither do I condemn you. We're called to renewal. And God smiles over our lives and God's love at work in our lives to propel us forward. So this is also the good news of Jesus for you. So bring your real selves to this table. Bring your real self. Do not feel like you've got to kind of get to some, some nirvana where you've confessed all your sins before. You never confess all. You don't even know all your sins. Bring your real selves to this table. Bring your real selves to real grace. And take, touch, handle. That's why He gave it to us, to remind us that He's real. Do you get that? We could have just had, let's have a moment of silence for Jesus, right? Once a month. But no, He wanted us to handle it. Take it. Take the bread. Hold it. Eat it. Take the cup. Touch it. It's as real as Christ on the cross. And drink it. Where are those that condemn you? We hear it said over us as we go to this table. They're not here anymore, Lord. They don't condemn. I'm not condemned anymore. Neither do I condemn you. Be renewed. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this table, we are so grateful that You are a holy God and so gracious. Lord, there is nothing in our lives that You won't forgive. Your grace is greater than our sin. Lord, if there are people that just can't let go of something, Would you show them that their God is too small and His grace is too small? Would you show them that your grace is greater? Lord, for those that feel stuck, would you just overwhelm them with your love in that you have actually come to rescue us? If you've never put your trust in what Jesus has done on the cross for you and you'd like to, pray with me. Lord, I see it. You did it. I don't have to do it. I I don't have to be good enough. And I'm so exhausted trying to be good enough. Or I gave up a long time ago. And I want to turn from everything I've called Christianity. And I want to turn from everything that I've called religion. And Jesus, I want to put my trust in what You have done for me. Completed, finished, it is finished on the cross in my place. Thank You that even now You have forgiven me on the basis of your work, not mine. Thank you that even now your spirit has been given to me. Thank you that even now I've been adopted into your family and I am your son or your daughter. And Lord, I want to live with you. Lord, there are many here who have known you for quite some time. But God, our, our, we just hit a, somehow hit an iceberg with some sin. And we just either didn't quite believe that your grace was still enough or were just not quite convinced 
that that's what we want. But would you just convince us of your great love? Would you convince us not only of the forgiveness that is always there in you, but the renewal and the joy to face life in a fallen world with you? Bless your people as we spend time with you at the table. In Jesus' name, amen.